1: this is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, your host, coming to you from New York City. And this being the end of the week, also uh, co-hosting with me, as always, is Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you doing today, Ryan?
2: Pretty well, David. Thanks.
1: Uh, We're joined today by um, uh, two special guests to discuss an important subject. One is Steve Pomper, who's the Interim Chief of Policy at the Crisis Group. Prior to joining the crisis group, Steve was a special assistant to the president, senior director for multilateral affairs and human rights at the NSC under President Obama, in addition to a number of other senior jobs. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Glad to be here. And also joining us is Ona Hathaway, who is the Gerard C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith, Professor of International Law at Yale Law School, and the Director of the Center for Global Legal Challenges at Yale Law School. Um, thank you for joining us, Ona.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, today we're here to talk about something that might seem quite uh, arcane or abstract to many in the audience, but could not be more fundamental. Uh, to the conduct of U.S. foreign policy, and that is um, war powers. What powers Congress has, what powers the Congress grants the president. When we use the most um, uh, significant force that is available to us as a government, there's a debate about Um, how that ought to be done. And both uh, Ona and Steve have written about it and are experts in it. And I'm gonna turn over to Ryan to ask the first couple of questions.
2: Thanks, David. Um, So, yeah, just to reiterate uh, what David said, in some ways just we couldn't ask two better experts uh, on the topic. So I thought I'd do a little bit of scene setting and then make the first question about what you and Steve think of as the the political window that might be opening here uh, to actually have something happen in Congress. So the scene setting is that something remarkable did happen on Tuesday, which is that two committees in the House, the Rules Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee both held hearings with a terrific panel of experts, um, including uh, Ona on the House Foreign Affairs Committee side on the topic of uh, War Powers Report. Uh, On the same day, two very significant committees with, I'll just make one mention, quite a bit of bipartisan support and a focus on the relationship between Congress and the executive rather than on some kind of partisan debate between Democrats and Republicans. And the scene setting is that I think we're talking about two dimensions of potential legislation. One is uh, statutory authorizations for the use of military force. So potentially repealing and or replacing existing authorizations, the uh, age of 1991 and 2002 authorizations for use of military force against Iraq. The 2001 authorization uh, right after September 11th against Al-Qaeda And so one big track that we're looking at here is whether or not Congress will um, repeal some of these uh, authorizations and then replace them with uh, maybe a narrower set of authorizations that's more specific to our current environment. And then the second track for legislation is the War Powers Resolution. So the um, resolution that came out of the Nixon era in order to try to rebalance congressional control so that the executive branch couldn't go off on its own um, uses of force that would potentially involve uh, US forces in hostilities without um, getting Congress to um, be a part of that picture and play a role so that Congress through the War Powers Resolution thought (laughs) it was um, putting a place for itself at the table, but that seems to have eroded greatly over time according to the consensus of experts. So would there actually be a 2021 AUMF and would there be a 2021 update or significant revision of the War Powers Resolution in terms of the new ways of thinking about the relationship between the way the President uses force and the Congress is involved writ large. Um, So I think that's that's what we're talking about. I guess the first question is both of you have such a good sense of the legal issues, but also what's happening on the Hill Um, is this uh, a real political window of opportunity in which you think something significant is going to happen? You know, where do you think we're going to be a year from now uh, in terms of this uh, apparent rise of uh, bipartisanship around these issues?
3: So I, I think it would be folly to predict, you know, certain success um, in, a, in an area as politically uh, fraught as war as powers. But I have to say that this window looks more promising uh, I think in both dimensions that you mentioned, you know, re- revision or rescission of the two use of force authorizations that are now approaching their third decade. Um, and I think more comprehensive war powers reform than I, than any really prior period that I can remember. And there are a couple of reasons for this, I think. One is just the the actual and political fact of the coming... 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. I mean, we are literally approaching our third decade of a war under a use of force authorization that was enacted before my kids went to college. Um, and that has been stretched to apply to groups that didn't exist at the time and with whom many Americans don't know are at war. So there really is, I think a fatigue with that status quo. And I think the, the 20th anniversary is gonna focus a lot of attention on that. But I think there's some broader you know, sort of themes in play that make the the moment ripe for the kind of reform effort that actually might bring Congress together around a a broader approach to to, to reforming the 1973 resolution. I'll just uh, enumerate a couple of them. First of all, there is a collective national experience of poorly advised interventions that have gone very badly. Some of which have been actually uh, approved by Congress, but many of which haven't. And I'm thinking in particular of The Libya intervention and the Yemen intervention. Then there was the learned experience of many members of Congress trying to push back on some of those interventions in the context of, for example, Yemen or in reaction uh, to the strike against um, General Soleimani last year, which I think a lot of people worried was going to push the United States to the brink of a very potentially dangerous war with Iran. And the the experience that Congress had that working within the framework of the War Powers Resolution they had virtually no tools to push back on the president. That brings me to my third point, which is the Trump effect. I think, you know, the, whatever you think of President Trump's foreign policy, he was clearly a president who was capable of putting uh, sort of personal and political logic ahead of the interests of the country and making decisions about war and peace. So I think the sense of Congress's sense of vulnerability or inability to change the course of things combined with the sense that you had a potentially reckless and personally motivated president in the White House, I think raised awareness that hadn't been there. And then I think this experience of working through war powers issues in the context of Yemen, in the context of Iran, has caused members of Congress to be educated in a way they simply haven't been before about what, about how the war powers resolution works and, and how it doesn't work and why it doesn't work. And so what you're seeing is a kind of interesting convergence. You're seeing, if you watch those panels, which were just extraordinary on Tuesday, a level of questioning that was incredibly sophisticated by members on both committees. You saw answers that were actually convergent among people who do not always align politically um, across both panels. And I think you're starting to see a convergence of ideas around not only the fact that we need reform, but how Congress could actually achieve that reform in a way that would be meaningful. And we can talk about that later, I don't wanna get into it. So I think all those things are combining to create a a sense of possibility that hasn't really existed, at least in any window that I can remember. Over to Ona.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, You know, it's it's really interesting to observe that the 2002 AOMF, when it was passed, only 15 of the current members of the Senate were in office um, and only 37 of the current members of the House. So we're fighting a war that our current representatives never had a vote on um, and they haven't taken a vote since um, on these wars. And I think a kind of awareness that that has become um, really out of date, that we have people fighting in these wars who weren't even born at the time that the wars were authorized. That just there's kind of an absurdity to that, and that we're increasingly seeing a stretching of these authorizations in ways that seem increasingly problematic um, and potentially dangerous. And I think that has helped open the window. Also, just one more thing to add um, to what Steve said, and I think his laydown was was excellent. Is I think we can't underestimate the role um, that having Biden in office plays because it's not only the memory of Trump, but also the fact that Biden has signaled an openness. To um, this, uh, both AOMF reform and war powers reform, um, because I think overcoming a veto from a president is near to impossible in this partisan climate. So you need a president who's at least signaling a willingness to potentially sign a revised AOMF or war powers reform, and who's okay with the idea that a revised um, set of rules might constrain his authority going forward. Um, I think that opens the door because Democrats, I think, have generally been more interested in um, making sure that Congress plays a significant role in overseeing use of military force. And Republicans, I think, find it more politically palatable to vote on limitations on the president's authority when it's a president of the other party that's in office. Um, So I think all these things do open the window um, greater than they have been in the past. I think we have to remain aware that, you know, the smart money is always against Congress doing anything. Um, so, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're gonna put money on it, um, you probably would put money on, uh, on no reform. But I agree with Steve, I think this is, in the years that I've been following this, and I've been following it pretty much since uh, 2001, um, uh, this, is, this is the um, most um, promising moment I've seen for reform uh, since, since then, um, and so that makes me hopeful.
1: Yeah, it is striking that, uh, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in elementary school when this, uh, this uh, the current AUMF was passed, So, um, uh, and now, of course, a member of Congress. Uh, there is a convergence of a number of issues, and, and Steve, you briefly touched upon this because of uh, the, the issue of Trump, and that is, what power should the president have you know, going back to a sort of question of if we had a blank sheet of paper, what power should the president have to initiate the use of force? Uh, and what power should reside with the Congress? And, um, you know, this doesn't just include, for example, uh, the authorization for the use of military force. It also ha- has carried over into discussion about the ability to launch a nuclear attack, for example, um, what's possible? Where could we end up? You know, if 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 these winds you sense that are blowing um, continue, and you know we you know we work within the practical political realities that we face. But what's what do you think is possible in this environment, Steve? First,
3: so. I mean, let's just start with where we are right now. Where we are right now is um, that the executive branch has basically interpreted its authority uh, to be able to take, take the, the country into a war as long as it serves a national interest. And so long as the nature, scope, and duration of whatever conflict you know, it was anticipated to, f- to follow from a use of force uh, doesn't rise to what... Um, uh, the Office of Legal Counsel of the Justice Department calls war in the constitutional sense. And that is, a, a you know, it's, it's not really clear how big a war that has to be, but it's a very big war. Um, and it, it, it wouldn't include Libya or, or Kosovo um, or, you know, many of the interventions that um, have been quite consequential over the last couple of decades. Um, in terms of how, how you could trim it back, I mean, if one were to go by the sort of strict constitutional standard, the conventional wisdom is the president has always had the authority to defend the nation. That was intended. If you look back at the, you know, at the record from, from the period of constitutional convention, that was clear that there, there was an intent uh, to, to give the president the power to defend the nation and to repel sudden attacks. And that, I think there's a, sort of a general consensus that that, that has broadened over time to include the ability to rescue Americans who are in danger overseas, basically the protection of nationals as a species of self-defense. I think that's sort of the core for people who are, um, let's say, uh, decision-sharing maximalists who would really like to see the two branches come together as much as possible um, on issues of of forest protection. if, if 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 you look at the model statutes that have emerged since 1973, um, there are many many different iterations of further carve outs that you can go beyond what I just described. Um, there are carve outs for UN sponsor, you know, UN authorized uh, interventions. There are some some models carve out. Um, Uh, you know, the protection of vital national interests without actually articulating necessarily what those are, Uh, the protection of navigation rights around the world. So uh, it depends a little bit on the, you know, on the predilections of the person who's the drafter. My own view sort of after, you know, practicing law in the executive branch and having watched how these things go is that one has to be very careful about the kinds of permission slips one gives out if we're gonna go into a war powers reform mode. Any kind of exception you put into a statute like this is going to be interpreted and stretched by the executive branch, probably without being challenged in the courts, because courts generally don't like to get involved in these matters. So my own view would be um, to try and keep it as close as possible to the orthodox, uh, repel southern attacks, and and help U.S. citizens overseas. I don't. Oh no, I don't know what you think.
0: Yeah, I think you and I are pretty much on the same page. So you started, David, with the question of, if you had a blank piece of paper, what what would you design? And I think what I would design is something that looks a lot like the original constitutional vision, which is that the president has the authority to repel sudden attacks, but for everything else, he really needs to go to Congress. Um, And that was clearly the original vision. It's not just a declare war clause, but there's a series of authorities that are granted to Congress that make it clear that there was an expectation that before the president was going to use military force or involved armed forces or develop an army or fund an army that he was going to have to come to congress to get permission to do so and we've drifted a really far way away from that over time and um the hope is that war powers reform it's not probably not going to correct us all the way back um, to the constitutional vision but hopefully it can get us a little bit closer back um to what that original vision was which is to ensure that Congress actually does get consulted and have a say when there's any significant decision about use of force, it's not a defensive use of force. That's a basic idea, I think, that informs a lot of these reform efforts.
1: Ryan, mm-hmm. I, I'd like you to ask another question, but I just want to throw in two observations of my own here. One is that um, you know, repelling uh, a foreign attack, of course, has evolved over time to have different consequences, and I, I just think we need to note that. You know, if we include in repelling a foreign attack the ability to destroy the planet Earth, we've, we've gone to a place that the framers could not have imagined, and yet that's in there, right? Um, and this is just way inside baseball, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, to, to the greater extent that you allow a um, president to wage war without declaring war, um, there is, there are there are unexpected consequences, and we discovered one of them um, uh, in the in the not too distant past with the president of the United States when he actually aided an enemy of the United States directly, and could not be charged with any of the crimes associated with aiding an enemy because the courts have determined that you can't actually be charged with, for example, treason, unless the enemy is one we've declared war against. In other words, there 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 is a big gray area in the middle of all of this, um, uh, since, you know, the era of John Marshall, um, and we never would have considered it. But under Donald Trump, we actually had this circumstance where you could have a president who embraced and supported and aided and abetted. Mm-hmm. Um, an enemy, but because we were not actually in a declared
2: state of war, he could actually get away with it. Ryan. So I want to try to circle back around from the other side and a little bit of this is devil's advocacy, um, to suggest that if we go back to that narrower, much, much narrower permission slip for the president, that it may be under inclusive. So two examples uh, from the hearings on Tuesday. One from um, Tom Malinowski at the very end of his Q&A, he said, I am worried about humanitarian contingency operations in which there's only like five days to make that decision. And it sure sounds like, you know, that would be according to both you, Ona and Steve, outside of the president's article two authority. And it sounds like if there's war powers reform on the resolution, that would be something that the president would require congressional authorization for as well through that framework. Is that a concern? Um, so maybe this is like Yazidis um, under threat of um, genocidal assault from ISIS in Iraq and either the president acts uh, within, <laughs> that's maybe even less than five days. I don't know if that's what Malinowski was thinking about um, since he, I think, I think he was there at the time, dealt with that issue. So that's one question, humanitarian operations of that sort with a very short time fuse and to think that the body of Congress can act uh, with such dispatch. And then a second one is John Bellinger pushing back as one of the panelists, one of the witnesses in the House uh, Rules Committee, saying, well, if you have any framework for war powers resolution that does things like an automatic funding cutoff or a cutoff unless you get affirmative congressional authorization, then that means that you really are asking for Congress to debate, discuss, and authorize every single advise and assist operation around the world. For example, um, because any one of those, I think, meet the definition of putting U.S. forces in potential harm's way and and the like. And it's, it's, so, are we? Are they right about that? Um, those two kinds of operations that. Suggest that maybe this framework's not broad enough in what it gives as a permission to the president.
0: Well, I'll, I'll take a quick um, uh, shot at that and then let Steve jump in. Um, so, on the humanitarian contingency, I mean, I think it'd be important to have a better sense of what it is he has in mind. I would be wary of a carve out for humanitarian purposes because what one person's humanitarian intervention is another person's aggression. And I do think you have to be careful about, you know, as Steve Ritley said, the more permission slips you create, the more chances there are of sort of expanding it out. Um, the Yazidis' um, uh, humanitarian mission, because it was um, counter-ISIS, could be justified under 2001 AOMF because the 2001 AOMF has been interpreted to extend to, to ISIS. So the extent that that's... Um, that that uh, mission um, was was, um, a source of that concern, you might be able to fit it under existing authorities. It's also the case that no matter what um, the War Powers Resolution revisions look like, it's almost certainly going to include a short window um, during which the president can act. uh, and um, inform Congress and let them, you know, let members of Congress know the kinds of actions that he is undertaking if he has to do so precipitously if it's so short uh, fused that he needs um, to act without seeking advance authority from Congress. But I guess I would be nervous about um, about creating an automatic um, cutout unless you're extremely careful about defining that narrowly. But even when you define it narrowly, honestly. The lawyers are very clever at finding ways to redefine it. I mean, if you read the 2001 AOMF, you'd never imagine that it would be used for what is being used today. Um, on the a- automatic um, cutoff um, uh, and the advice and con- uh, assist missions, um, with those being c- covered, I mean, a lot of those are covered under separate statutory authorities, so like 127E. So there are other authorities that already exist. So the War Powers Resolution wouldn't apply to it. And I think, That would require, I think it's appropriate for Congress to sit back and think about to what extent do we want to engage in these advise and assist missions and what is the scope of those missions and to what extent do we want to to authorize those in advance. But there are separate statutory authorities that already authorize those and so those would be exempted from the limitations of our powers resolution because they've been prior um, authorization um, under a pre-existing statute. So I guess neither of those really worry me all that much.
3: And I'll, I'll jump in too on this, Ryan. So actually one thing I omitted when you were asking me the window question, why I thought this was a good window for, for reform was, uh, it has to do with the sort of democratization agenda that the Biden administration has. You know, It's talking about, and I think the president actually alluded to this in his press, press remarks today, um, the fact that the, the best way to sort of counter authoritarianism abroad is to, to bolster our own democracy and, and help others bolster theirs. And I think if war, decisions about going to war, are seen as an elite project that are taken by you know, executive branch lawyers interpreting arcane instruments without buy-in from the people, um, that, is a, that has a corrosive impact. On our democracy, it's it's it isn't really consistent with democratic principles, and I also think it creates openings for the kind of Trumpist, you know, sort of what I consider to be slightly slightly, um, uh, fakely motivated Trumpist populist ranting against forever wars. I'd much rather be in a position where, you know, when the country goes to war, whether it's for, uh, you know, hu- humanitarian intervention or some other reason, that the whole the whole country is behind it. Um, and the best way to do that is to go to Congress. And in fact, you know, I, I was the Atrocity Prevention guy at the White House for five years, and I, you know, I worked in this space. And one thing I discovered was that there was often, you know, not as much public support for the kinds of agendas that we were working on as as you really needed to make them politically sustainable and viable. So I, I you know, I respect Tom a lot, but I think one needs to sort of balance these things out. And you're probably better off if you're really thinking about a humanitarian intervention, making sure the country is fully behind you when you go into a situation like that. And on 127E, I agree completely uh, with Ona on this, um, that you know, there is the statutory authority out there. It covers the bulk of the situations that you know, we're talking about, but there's a risk that people are gonna be involved in firefights, you know, killing people, contorting local dynamics, getting killed themselves, that should be aired. And that should be a conversation in front of Congress. And yeah, Congress should authorize that.
1: So um, I don't really have a problem with that either. So one more round from me, one more round from uh, Ryan. I'm gonna pick up with a story that uh, uh, broke on this subject in the Washington Post in the past hour and a half uh, with regard to the time we're recording this. Uh, which is entitled Democrats Push Biden on Returning War Powers Authority to Congress. It includes an interview with uh, the likes of Ben Cardin saying, how far can we go without the the, the White House? And uh, and then it includes the reporter going to uh, the NSC and the NSC saying no comment. And so mm-hmm. the, the question becomes, um how far do you, th- you know, how far do you think Biden will go in living up to the past standards that he's applied as, as a senator? I, you know,
3: it's interesting. Um, there's a wonderful article on war powers reform written in 1988 in the wake of the tanker wars um, that, you know, it's, it's actually quite a scholarly piece. It, it describes the different war powers traditions, um, the monarchic tradition that tries to vest lots of power in the presidency and the joint decision uh, paradigm that tries to share powers between the elected branches. And the author, of course, is Joe Biden, (laughs) and it's really a good piece. Um, But then you get to the end, and as is often the case with these, you know, these sort of reform articles, uh, you know, the normative language and the analytic language is just, you know, chef's kiss. And then you get to the, uh, you know, the actual statute, and there's so many carve-outs at the end, you begin wondering whether it, you know, will actually have the effect of reform. And I think it's just the nature of being in the executive branch that you, are, you're going to be very nervous about giving up power. It's a hard thing to do. You're thinking about, you know, the institution of the presidency, making sure that you would be prepared to meet any contingency. So it's not going to be intuitive, I don't think, even for somebody who's really obviously thought about this. And, and I think from the perspective of both institutions and really has, uh, you know, even if, however much he has the sort of democratic interests of the country at heart, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. But my actual answer to your question, David, is I don't think they know yet, is my guess. I think they are probably mulling this, thinking about it, consulting inside the executive branch, really looking into the history of, of the different interventions and how things would have gone if power had been allocated differently. The risks of, you know, of, of, that they're facing right now and trying to think all that through. And then there's the element of what kind of political pressure is going to mount. You know, where, where where really is Congress on this? You know, how much political risk is there? And they have to put all that together. And my guess is it's, it's probably not come all together yet. I mean, they've only been in office for a little while.
0: I would agree with that. I also think they're actually probably wise to stay out of it for now. Um, uh, because it's just as well to sort of let Congress work it out and see if, in fact, there's enough momentum behind this in Congress. They're not going to be the ones leading the charge. They don't want to invest political capital in it. They got too many other things that they're pushing hard. They got a big agenda. And so it's got to be coming from Congress. And so I think they're much more in receptive mode right now. I mean, just knowing the individuals in the White House working on this issue and having talked to them over the years, I think they're, they're very aware of the infirmities of the current system. And I think everyone is more aware of the vulnerabilities of the system to abuse. And I think people are more aware than they have been in the past of the possibility that the next president might take the authorities that the current president protects and put them to bad use. Um, And I think that the people um, working in the White House right now are acutely aware of those dangers. Um, And I think that that is going to make them more open to reforms than I think um, people in the White House have been in the past, who I think have been constantly in a defensive crouch to kind of protect the powers of the president at all costs. And I think there's much more of awareness that actually maybe it's not such a great thing to protect all the powers of the president at all costs because Joe Biden's not gonna be president forever and somebody's gonna be coming next and you're stewarding the institution for the next president, but you are also stewarding the institution for American democracy and you don't necessarily wanna be protecting powers that could be put to abuse um, in the future. So I, I think they're more aware of that than... Uh, than White House uh, staff have been in the past and therefore likely to be more open to reform than has been true in the past. But how exactly they'll respond probably depends a lot on what proposals put on the table. And and that's far from clear at this point.
1: Well, if there's one positive benefit to the Trump presidency, and and frankly, this may be the only one I've thought of so far, (laughs) but if there's one positive benefit, um, it's that it has opened us to the possibility that President Marjorie Taylor Greene or President Hawley are not um, out of the question.
0: Or President Trump again, frankly.
1: Yeah, see, I didn't of even several know several that. Of them, yeah. I the didn't
0: know <laughs> <even laughs> Lots of candidates for that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah right. Pre- Family primary,
2: uh, then party primary. <laughs> president
1: Donald Trump Jr. Um, uh, okay, Ryan, <laughs> you, can cl- um. you can clean up that mess with the last round of questions. <laughs>
2: Um, so I guess the other uh, issue I think about is the potential unintended consequences of these reform efforts, which could end up with a more expansive, um, either executive authority that is then being granted by Congress, specifically, or it could be more expansive uh, in the realm of also as well as um, forever wars, um, So two ways in which that might happen that it'd be just good to hear what the two of you think about them. So one is, it sounds like many people in Congress and the White House from what they have communicated on AUMF reform authorization for use of military force is to um, repeal the 2002 AUMF, repeal and replace the 2001 AUMF with something narrower and more specific. The narrow and more specific. There's also other like loose language that I think is bandied about, um, maybe coming a little bit more from some of the Republican members of the on the Hill, which is so that it could be more specifically authorizing the president to use force against existing terrorist threats. And I could imagine the, what's behind that is um, Iran, right? So that they, the, if somebody's uh, Lindsey Graham, they might think um, this is an opportunity for me. Um, on authorizing you know, threats against terrorist groups and who, who would that be but Iran in his mind. And then another way of thinking of it is if the president were required to have gotten affirmative authorization from Congress for some of the more recent strikes against um, Iranian-backed militia groups, what would that world look like, right? So if Biden had to go to Congress to get backing for... Um, this, the February strike in Syria, he might've gotten it in in, in um, uh, boatloads of that. And is that really, so you might actually say that we live in a better world right now to some extent that we muddle through and a president does a one-off strike and claims article two authority to do it independently, rather than the president actually has to go to Congress and then get an authorization to use force against an Iranian backed group um, that the prior administration actually said was so intermingled with Iran that they could strike Iran, uh, not just the group itself. Or the Soleimani strike. Um, imagine if Trump had actually gone to Congress and said, I want authorization to strike him, given all of the language on, on the Hill about how he's such a bad guy and it's so good that he was removed, kind of giving that legitimacy to it. But they could have given, given something more than that, just the you know patina of legitimacy to it if he had asked for it, uh, potentially. So that unintended consequence. Or on the other hand, you know, I could also see the answer to this question being, so be it, that's democracy, right? You know, that that, that still is abiding by our democratic principles. And if that's the will of the representatives of the people, then that is a much better, that's always going to be the better status quo, you know, the better uh, scenario, I suppose. Um, How do you all think about that kind of a question?
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, you know, starting in 2010, I think, maybe even earlier than that, I started writing about you know, the AOMF is really old, we need to replace it. It's, you know, so, so and, and the response I got was something very much like this, which is, well, if it's replaced at this point, it's gonna be, we're gonna get more authority than we want. We're gonna get an AOMF that's, that's more expansive. And I guess to that, I would say, certainly at this point, um, the problem is that if you have these AOMFs in place that are being interpreted in increasingly um, implausible ways, and stretched to more and more um, uh, uh, distant purposes from their original purpose, as is necessary as we get further and further in time from the original um, uh, authorization, um, you you effectively sort of wipe away whatever limits the text actually contains, and you're left with this effectively blank check. You know, maybe not completely blank, but. You know, I, my view is that the extension of the 2001 AOMF to ISIS was a really big stretch and probably an inappropriate an one. Um, and the 2001 AOMF was being, being used to justify all kinds of things. The 2002 AOMF, which says it's, against, it's to defend against threats posed by Iraq, and that was Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And then it gets cited for things that are, just have nothing to do with that. And, um, uh, you know, Trump in particular cited it for all, for, for purposes, including uh, the Soleimani strike um, and seemed to be sort of hinting that it might provide authority for more extensive operations against Iran. So you're leaving these kind of loaded weapons around that you don't really know what they're going to be used for, and you're allowing them to be used for increasingly distant just of uh, purposes than for which they were originally intended, they're not really providing the limits that was originally intended. Um, and you're much better off, I think, having a new AUMF that is more specific, even if it just is um, putting in specific terms the scope of the existing fight. And then I do think it's essential to include a reauthorization requirement so that we don't get in this place of like continual drift that we have been caught in since 2001, have it reauthorized every two or three years. I prefer two years. I'd be fine with three years, you know, some kind of requirement that makes it necessary for Congress to weigh back in on a regular basis. Um, And if Congress wants to authorize the use of military force against Iran, I would argue against that. I think it's a terrible idea. I actually think it wouldn't get through Congress. I mean, it was raised in Congress and Congress was very upset about the idea. So I I don't think it would win, but if it did, then members of Congress would be held responsible for their decisions when that inevitably um, had the possibility of getting us embroiled in another Mideast war. Um, So yeah, I mean, I do think democracy is is kind of the answer here and and the American people need to be able to know what position their their representatives are taking and their representatives need to be forced to take a position so that they can be held accountable for those decisions.
3: Yeah, and I just, I agree with that. I think it's not democracy is an abstract principle. It's democracy is a learning tool. I mean, we really need, you know, Congress to be held accountable. Otherwise our political institutions aren't gonna get smarter about when, you know, when we go to war. I mean, and the Iraq, I think the fact that a lot of politicians were held accountable for the votes on the Iraq resolution in 2002 is a good case of point. I also think, you know, people hold that out as an example of how, you know, congressional authorization isn't gonna solve everything and it, and it won't solve everything. But that was at a particular moment in time, you know, when the United States was flush with hubris in the sort of uh, post-Cold War moment. I mean, obviously been knocked off our skates a little bit by the, by the 9-11 attacks, but still there was a sense that, yeah, we could, you know, of really massive power behind our efforts and, and a lot of hubris behind what we you know could achieve in Iraq. And I think we've learned some lessons from that. And I think politicians who voted from that and the experience of seeing them held accountable has probably taught people some lessons as well. I, I just also would second Ryan that, you know, somehow it has to get into the bloodstream of the way, you know, Congress legislates in this area that there have to be limits on use of force authorizations. And this is what I think, you know, I was alluding to about reauthorization. There need to be limits about, you know, against whom force is being authorized, how long the authorization is gonna last. Um, I would argue, and I know there are differences of views about this, that it should, you know, there should be geography limits as well. Um, I just, you know, otherwise you do risk as, as I was saying, the possibility that these just become pieces of paper that people, almost Rorschach desks, onto which people, you know, basically impute whatever they wanna see. Um, so, you know, whether or not Congress can actually legislate rules for, you know, of the road for itself, I'm not sure they can actually do that in a way that's gonna be binding on future Congresses, but it might not be bad if they ever did reform to include at least some, um, uh, you know, indicative language about what would be good practices in the, you know, in the, in, the, in a statutory authorization because um, the you know, the reason we're in a forever war is because in 2001 Congress enacted a forever statute
2: and And that that's something we need to get away from yeah. And just to say one thing is, um, I don't want my question to suggest that I agree with the premise of the question It's actually just to get you all to um, talk about it because Uh, we've written pieces together (laughs) in which we're basically on the same page. And then I think as well, that this is also a great Congress uh, to pass uh, a narrow AMF because it will not get out of hand uh, as well as another kind of a convergence of opportunity.
1: Let me ask one last 30 second question. And of course, typically I've found on on doing this podcast and doing panels and live discussions. When I say it's a 30 second question, that's the one that (laughs) could take 24 hours to answer. So you know, I I, I I append the caveat, but it does, a question raises in my mind, and I have not studied this closely, about what do we mean by force and uh, what do we mean by defense? And, and specifically, it comes to mind in the context of cyber conflict um, in the sense that um, you could easily imagine a situation in which a president who wanted to do mischief said, Well, we were attacked cyber. I have to take action to defend us against the cyber attack. Or a president who wanted to do mischief could say, Well, cyber is not exactly force. And therefore, it's perfectly okay for me to shut down the power grid and all the hospitals in country X. Um, and um, you know, the definition of, of, of these terms is changing. And I'm just wondering how, how that ought to be addressed.
0: Well, I'll just say a quick word, which is it, it's been interesting interesting that Congress has actually been pretty energized on this issue in the last few years and has embedded additional authorities in the NDAA in the last few years, which some people refer to as a mini AUMF. Um, so additional authorities use um, cyber, um, uh, to engage in cyber operations, Um uh, that are more offensive, this sort of quote unquote defend forward um, uh, agenda of um, cyber command. Um, and, and I think it does raise some questions about what the scope is that we want um, for our uh, cyber operations. So far, what has been authorized is not full scale um, force. Um, it's it's um, something quite short of that. But I do think part of this conversation does need to be how does cyber fit into the picture? And I think right now, we tend to treat it as an independent um, authority and sort of severed from the rest of the conversation. These, these um, additional authorities are ones that, as I said, you know these little sort of provisions sort of snuck into the NDAA and then reporting goes to the armed services committees Not to SFRC or to uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee. And so they don't have a full awareness of what's going on in the cyber context when they're having to make decisions about, for instance, what should we do with regard to Iran. Um, So I do think we need to be bringing cyber into the picture Um, I don't think at this moment it's likely that what's going to happen is the president's going to say, hey, there was a cyber operation. I've got to do full-scale use of force in response. I think much more likely is there's going to be quiet activity happening um, that sort of floats below the uh, surface that we're not particularly aware of and that does have the possibility of eventually escalating into something bigger. And it is part of the reason I'd like to see some of these the silos broken down and more information passing across committees about what's happening in cyber.
3: Yeah. And the only thing I'll add to that, David, is, I mean, it's, it's a domain in which uh, force can be projected. Um, not every cyber operation rises to the level of, uh, of a use of force, but certainly some can. And I think the question is, you know, where is that threshold? And And, but, but to the extent, or recognizing that that's a possibility, it's hard to imagine some legislation you know, really trying to do comprehensive reform that doesn't at least take into account that,
1: that prospect. Yeah, And since we don't have really clear doctrine about kinetic response, when is it appropriate in the case of a cyber attack and so forth? It just, it just struck me that it's a gray area. Well, look, this has been a fascinating discussion and one that's really extremely important uh, it's something we will follow extremely closely as well. And hopefully, you folks will um, consent to come back. And as we, we all make progress on this, uh, you've done a terrific job. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. Thank you, Ona, for joining us. Thank you, as always, Ryan, for joining us. For those of you who would like to find out what we've got coming up in upcoming uh, podcasts, go to the dsrnetwork.com. I know that tomorrow we're gonna have a conversation with Representative Ted Lieu, who we've talked to several times on a variety of issues and um, who's a very smart guy. So I encourage you to go and look for that. And then everything else we've got coming week to week, members of Congress our usual podcasts, uh, interactive podcasts where you can post questions. So go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want to support us, click membership and you can uh, sign up and give us a little bit of support there. We'd appreciate it. Uh, In the meantime, uh, in addition to thanking all these folks, everybody, please stay uh, healthy out there. Bye-bye.